It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how the summer of 1982 changed movies forever, for better or worse. Plus, a study justifying why teenagers suck at listening to their parents. And how to watch this weekend's total eclipse of the moon. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It's no secret that I am a fan of 80s movies. The frequency with which I reference Back to the Future on this podcast should probably be illegal. And do I probably like 80s movies because when I was growing up in the 90s, those were the movies that all the cool older kids in my neighborhood were into, so it's some kind of aspirationally nostalgic thing for me? And now that same generation of cool older kids are seasoned filmmakers and writers packing their stories with references to the movies of their youth, causing everyone to revisit them with the same rose-colored glasses that make those movies seem so much better and more authentic than anything that could be churned out by our algorithm-poisoned brains nowadays. Yeah, probably. But it turns out there is a decent argument to be made that the 1980s, and the summer of 1982 specifically, marked a significant turning point in the history of film and how we think of movies today. Seasoned movie journalist Jeremy Smith laid it all out in a recent piece for AV Club. Smith argues that 1982 was the year summer blockbusters began in earnest. Sure, it was the astronomic success of Jaws in 1975 that made studios first start realizing that releasing films over the summer when kids were out of school, as opposed to their previous strategy of, well, just kind of premiering movies whenever, could really make a difference. Smith says this strategy was a confirmed success by Star Wars coming out in 1997, and then Animal House in 78, and Alien in 79, all of which were rousing summer box office smashes. But though the epic summer of 1982, when every studio had cottoned on to this strategy and was pushing flick after flick out to the masses between Memorial Day and Labor Day, seems like a treasure trove of hits in hindsight, a lot of the films we'd think of as just about classics these days didn't actually do that well when they were in theaters that year. Smith notes that Blade Runner, The Thing, and Tron all bombed. People didn't get them or weren't interested based on early negative reviews. Studios were taking big risks because the market seemed so hot. And it was still a pretty stacked summer. The summer of 1982 also saw Rocky III, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Chariots of Fire, Conan the Barbarian, Friday the 13th Part Three, The World According to Garp, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and The Secret of Nim. Not bad for one single summer. But the one that would really break through, the one that would top the summer box office charts of 1982, the charts for the entire year, and become the top grossing film of all time until Jurassic Park came along 11 years later, the true star of summer 1982 was Steven Spielberg's E.T., At just 34 years old, Spielberg already had a reputation for making blockbusters, with Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark under his belt. But E.T. was the first one that critics and the public alike really agreed on. Everyone, it seemed, fell in love with Elliot and the abandoned alien, noting that the emotion had a lot more depth than some of Spielberg's shallower previous films. But it wasn't just Spielberg and his peers putting out movies that would become beloved for decades to come. The summer of 1982 left its mark because people went to see those movies because of a few other changes happening in the industry at the time. Notably, the expansion of multiplex theaters. Quoting Smith and AV Club, 
Chains like National Amusements and AMC were erecting massive complexes all over the country, which allowed studios to front-load openings on 1,000-plus screens rather than roll their hits out more slowly over several months. Paramount Pictures, sweating a Trekker mutiny due to the widely reported death of Spock, took full advantage of this newfangled opportunity by launching Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan on 1,621 screens over the weekend of June 4th. They were rewarded with a record-breaking $14 million three-day gross, more than twice the opening take of Poltergeist. Other studios didn't immediately change their release strategies. For example, 1983's Uber anticipated The Return of the Jedi debuted on a modest 1,002 screens. But by the early 90s, it was customary for tentpole titles to go as wide as possible in their opening frame. End quote. And while those big blockbuster sequels were making a killing at the box office, smaller original films didn't really have a place to go. Studios were trying to shove them into the seemingly guaranteed success of the summer box office, but especially as home video took off and then cable and pay-per-view, it became harder and harder to lure people to the movie theater for films they weren't guaranteed to love, or at least were guaranteed to give them a wild dopamine rush and something to say to everyone else at school or in the office who had also seen it. And this, Smith indicates, is the kind of sad way that the summer of 1982 changed movies forever, though I'd argue this was more of a burgeoning trend that summer that really built on for longer afterwards. It's what I talked about last month in the segment about why movies have gotten longer and longer. Studios aren't as willing to take risks because it's become harder and harder to recoup the budget in the box office, especially with movies you can pretty much calculate won't be blockbusters. Already in 1982, it was clear that franchise sequels and action films, movies from the top blockbuster filmmakers like Spielberg and starring everyone's favorite celebrities, those were the ones that would smash the records and earn back their budgets and more. As Smith put it, quote, Why rush out to see Ron Howard's visually ho-hum night shift when it'll be available to rent from the local video store within the next six months? Forty years later, the nation's cinemas have ultimately become amusement parks, delivery systems for cutting-edge CG showcases and the occasional cheap horror movie thrill. Want proof? Just ask Steven Spielberg. In 2021, his widely celebrated $100 million remake of West Side Story bombed at the box office with a $38 million domestic take, while the latest Spider-Man movie became the third highest grossing movie in film history. Now, there were complicating factors, namely December's Omicron surge scaring off older moviegoers who would have been the key target for West Side Story, but the hard truth is that young viewers simply didn't care to buy a ticket for a film based on a 64-year-old production absent superheroes, dinosaurs, or dazzling action set pieces, end quote. He points out that, with rare exceptions, even comedies don't hit the silver screen anymore, not like they did when I was in high school. Straight-up comedies, especially of the shock jock variety, are rarely released in theaters to much fanfare these days. Maybe it reflects a changing taste more broadly, but I can't even think of a Will Ferrell box office comedian equivalent nowadays. Comedy fans are much more likely to watch a Netflix stand-up special than go see a gross-out film that's one of the biggest releases of the summer. Even the big Adam Sandler movie coming out this summer is a drama. The arguably most highly anticipated summer 2022 comedy is probably the Bob's Burgers movie, an existing franchise, aka a safe bet, and one that will be full of just as much heart as laughs. Industry experts expect it'll be Thor Love and Thunder, Lightyear, 
Top Gun Maverick, and maybe Jordan Peele's Nope that saves movie theaters this summer. Though the return of the OG cast in Jurassic World Dominion will probably nudge it along too. But apart from Nope, which has a consistently successful critically and financially director at its helm, those are all sequels and franchise installments. Smith argues 1982 was when studios really realized this secret sauce. Push all the blockbusters to the summer when kids are out of school, and don't count on too much from anything not engineered in a lab. We tend to point our fingers at streaming movies, and more recently the pandemic, for studios taking less risks and for theaters being dominated by superheroes, but... As much as I love 80s films with all my heart, that might have been the years when it all started to go downhill, depending, of course, on your opinion of the point of the movie-going experience. Well, speaking of teen movies and parents who just don't get you, a new study out of Stanford University indicates that teenagers really do tune out their mother's voices. And it's not a bad attitude, it's just science, man. Also, props to Science Alert for literally running this story on Mother's Day over the weekend. Published at the end of April in the Journal of Neuroscience, the study used functional MRA brain scans to determine how kids and adolescents responded to different voices. Quoting Stanford's News Center, The team previously found that in the brains of children 12 and under, hearing mom's voice triggers an explosion of unique responses. A study published in 2016 showed that kids can identify their mom's voices with extremely high accuracy, and that the special sound of mom cues not just the brain's auditory processing areas, but also many areas not triggered by unfamiliar voices, including reward centers, emotion processing regions, visual processing centers, and brain networks that decide when incoming information is salient. For the most recent study, the researchers recorded the teens' mothers saying three nonsense words, which lasted just under a second. Using nonsense words ensured that the participants would not respond to the words meaning or emotional content. Two women unfamiliar with the study subjects were recorded saying the same nonsense words. Each teenage participant listened to several repetitions of the nonsense word recordings by their own mother and the unfamiliar women presented in random order and identified when they heard their mom. Just like the younger children, teens correctly identified their mother's voices more than 97% of the time. End quote. The teenage participants were then put into a magnetic resonance imaging scanner and played the voice recordings again, along with recordings of household sounds, like a dishwasher, to see how they responded to non-voice sounds. The older that the kids and teenagers were, the more their brains activated in response to all voices. In fact, the direct correlation between age and greater brain activation was so strong that researchers were able to use the brain scans to predict the participants' ages. But where it got interesting was that unlike the under-12s who had all those responses to their mom's voice specifically, the teenagers' brains showed greater activity from unfamiliar voices as opposed to from their moms. The switch happened consistently around age 13 or 14 across genders. Quoting Science Alert, Researchers suspect this is a sign of the teenage brain developing social skills. In other words, a teenager doesn't intentionally close off their family, their brain is just maturing in a healthy way. When teens appear to be rebelling by not listening to their parents, it's because they're wired to pay more attention to voices outside their home, says neuroscientist Vinod Manon from Stanford University, end quote. 
While the finding is certainly interesting, the researchers are not at all surprised that our brains are so attuned to voices. They point to that emotional jolt that we can often feel at hearing a friend or loved one's voice after a long time. And in the future, the researchers are hoping to study children and adolescents with autism, as they've already found that young children with autism do not have as strong a brain response to their mother's voice as neurotypical children. And I would also be curious to see studies with other parents besides moms and kids from families with parents of the same gender. Like, how specific to moms is this phenomenon? But until then, if you've got a teen at home who seems like they're just never listening to you, remember that it's not entirely their fault. Apparently, it's just the way their brain is developing. The Super Blood Moon is back this weekend for a total lunar eclipse that will be visible in parts of the Americas, Europe, Africa, the East Pacific, and even Antarctica. It's gonna be a good one. Quoting Space.com, When a total lunar eclipse happens, it passes into the umbra, or deep shadow of the Earth. Light from our planet is refracted around the edges of the atmosphere and falls upon the moon's surface. That's where the red hue comes from. More simply put, you can imagine the sunsets and sunrise of our planet being reflected upon the moon's surface. As the sky looks redder during this phase of the day, that's another way of explaining why the blood moon color happens. Penumbral eclipses are a little trickier to see. These occur when the moon only passes within the penumbra, or lighter shadow, of our planet. And sometimes it's very difficult to see the moon's darkening, but depending on how much light pollution you're dealing with, you may get lucky. The moon will not turn red for a penumbral eclipse, but should look a little bit darker than usual. End quote. So the total lunar eclipse will be visible in the aforementioned locations, but then the penumbral eclipse will be visible in New Zealand, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. The first space.com link in the show notes has a table of various North American locations along with the time of moonrise in each location on May 15th. Timeanddate.com has more information about timing for optimal viewing based on where you live, also linked in the show notes. And if you won't be in a good viewing location, there is also a link there to the various webcasts that will be streamed by institutions like NASA. And as a reminder, you don't need any safety glasses or anything like that with solar eclipses or any special equipment like a telescope to spot it. Just pop out sometime on the evening of the 15th or 16th and enjoy a very uniquely cool-looking moon. And the next lunar eclipse won't be until November 8th. In other space news, Prime Video has just announced an upcoming documentary about the Mars Opportunity rover called Goodnight Oppie. It'll debut in theaters on November 4th and hit streaming on Amazon later that month. The film is directed by award-winning filmmaker Ryan White and has the backing of Amblin Television, as well as Industrial Light and Magic, who are on hand to create visual effects to transport audiences to Mars. Quoting Collider, Goodnight Oppie tells the true story of the rover Opportunity and its historic 15-year journey across the surface of Mars. Originally planned to scout for only 90 days, the little robot that could far outlasted its protocol and continued scouting the surface of our neighboring planet for years to come, discovering evidence that water was once on Mars at some point. Along with its twin rover Spirit, it sent back footage that completely changed our perspective on planets beyond our own. During its mission, the crew behind Opportunity forged a bond with the rover from millions of miles away, communicating with it and receiving its perspective of Mars all the way until its declared death in 2020. 
end quote. It kind of feels like it's being marketed as a real-world Wally, and honestly, I'm into it. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.